about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel. To him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Um, The second Bible reading is from John 13, verses 31 to 38 on the handout. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Well, good evening again, folks. It's a real um, delight to be able to finish this mini-series on John 13 with you this evening. Um, uh, If you haven't been with us, we've we've just taken the last 
two weeks, and this is the third, uh, looking at this chapter in, in, in really the lead-up to Good Friday that shows us some of the things that happened the night before Jesus died, the night he was betrayed. And we come to the end of it now uh, with this interaction between Jesus and Peter. I will say, though, that these sermons are designed to lead into Good Friday. So I hope you can come on Good Friday morning and because um, it, 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 it uh, does continue. But if you can't, you know, it still could be okay this evening. So let me pray as we think about this last section of Scripture. Lord, we thank you for these good words of your servant John and the insight they get us into this, they give us into this uh, intimate moment, this meal of Jesus with his friends, the darkness of his betrayal, the confusion of his followers. I pray that you would teach us through them, speak your word into our hearts, shape our minds, show us the way. For Jesus' sake, amen. So being a Christian means being a follower of Jesus. That's right, isn't it? Uh, Jesus says, come and follow me, and that's a normal way of thinking about what it means to be a Christian. For those of us who are Christians, Jesus is our master, our teacher, our leader, and we follow him. Without denying any of this, this evening what we need to do is to say something else, which is that being a Christian also means seeing, it means recognizing that there is a point at which we can't follow Jesus. Being a Christian is about coming to grips with the fact that he has gone where we, so far, cannot follow. Where I'm going, Jesus says to Peter, did you catch it? Where I'm going, you cannot follow now. Today, what we need to think about is that being a Christian is also about what we're called to do while we can't follow. And we can learn a lot from thinking about this, I, I believe. So do come with me now as we look at this last part of John's Gospel, chapter 13. The passage is printed uh, on the sheet, I hope you got on the way in. On the other side, there's a sermon outline. We're going to look first at what it means for Jesus to say, now the Son of Man is glorified. Then we're going to look at Peter's reaction to this, where he says, why can't I follow now? And finally, we're going to think about what all that means for us. Well, last week, if you were here, you'll know that we looked at the scene in verses 18 to 30 uh, of chapter 13, in which Jesus declares that one of his disciples is going to betray him. But then he doesn't stop it, even though he does know who it is. At great cost to himself, he tells Judas to do what he's got to do. And Judas does. And once Judas has left, the die is cast, so to speak. The last moment at which Jesus could have stopped these events from beginning to unfold has passed. He has faced the challenge and overcome it. And now, therefore, he says, he will be glorified. Verse 31. Have a look at it there. Verse 31. When he, when he was gone, that is, when Judas was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. 
You're not alone if you find this a bit, this sentence, these, these sentences, this language a bit weird. Um, I think the disciples probably did too. I'm sure they didn't quite know what he was talking about. But why shouldn't it be a bit weird? Because what he is talking about is extraordinary. Extraordinary. Jesus is looking ahead to what back in verse 1 of chapter 13, John calls his departure from this world to the Father. His departure from this world to the Father. And this means both his death and his resurrection and ascension. Jesus is looking ahead and seeing all this, his death and resurrection and ascension, as one, one climactic event of going to God. And it will be an act, Jesus says, in which God will be glorified and in which he will be glorified and God will be glorified in him and God will be glorified precisely in his being glorified. His glory will be God's glory and God's glory will be his. His glory, God's glory will be one. That's an amazing thing to say. If you think about it, it is not something that you or I would say. It's probably not even something that even Elon Musk would say. That his glory will be God's glory. It is something, though, that God said in the Old Testament about his people Israel. You might have caught it in our reading from Isaiah. You are my servant, he says in Isaiah, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. God speaks there of how his servant Israel will be the way in which he is glorified in the world. But actually, Jesus is going even further than that. Because he doesn't just say that God will be glorified in him, through him. He says that he will be glorified and that that will be God's glory. He says that his glory will be God's glory. What is glory? What is glory? It's about being honoured, being recognised as superb, important, weighty. It's about standing out, being seen, being beautiful. That's why we often think of glory as having to do with brightness, shining, radiance. These lights are glorious. A bit too glorious, I think, but... Um, actually, I've looked at them, and now I cannot see my sermon. <laughs> that is a new problem. There we go. But how will Jesus be glorified? How will Jesus be glorified? How will he be magnificent? Not in a brilliance of light. Not in a shining magnificence that makes everybody fall down and worship, at least not at first. No, Jesus will be glorified by being humiliated. He will be glorified by shame. He will be hoisted on a cross, publicly insulted and killed, to all appearances an embarrassing failure. Isaiah says it's like one from whom people hide their faces. And that, says Jesus, is the glory of God. Make no mistake, that is an extraordinary 
claim about God. It is a claim that was then and is now mostly seen as impossible and embarrassing, that God would have to do with something as ugly and nasty as crucifixion, that God would be involved in the dirt and the blood and the the shame of that. It's outrageous. But yes, says Jesus, that is exactly what is happening here. The cross is not some embarrassing necessity, a dropped stitch in the weave of God's grand purpose. It wasn't just something that had to be gotten out of the way and then forgotten about. The cross is the glory of God. And there is no glory of God that does not shine through the cross. He has made his glory one with Jesus' shame. God has identified himself with this man, this son of man. The throne of God, the book of Revelation says, the throne of God is the throne of the lamb that was slain. Think about that image. The throne of God is the throne of of the lamb that was slain, of a dead sheep. And it will never be anything else. And that is what Jesus is entering into here. And it is something that, it is somewhere that we cannot yet follow. Verse 33, Jesus said, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Where I am going, you cannot come. The time for following has come to an end. Now Jesus is going on ahead. Somewhere they cannot accompany him. And it puts the disciples in a certain way with just everyone else, even with Jesus' enemies. He has to tell them something he's already told the Jews, which is John's gospel's way of talking about Jesus' enemies. It's not as weird as it sounds to us, because John, of course, knew that he and all the disciples and Jesus were also Jews. But he's referring to the group, particularly that are in chapters, uh, the early chapters of John. And in this case, he's referring to this awful set of arguments that happen in chapters 7 and 8 where Jesus tells them in the heat of argument that he's going to go away and they'll look for him and they won't find him. It must have been shocking for the disciples to hear now that, in a sense, they were in the same boat. They too cannot come with him. Where does that leave them? Well, back in chapter 8 of John's Gospel, when Jesus says this to his opponents, he told them where it left them. He said, you will die in your sin. You'll look for me, you won't find me. And you'll die. Is that where the disciples are left? No, it isn't. They are left with a job to do. And they're left with each other. From verse 34, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, this is obviously an important sentence. 
But I think it will help us to take it seriously if we first notice Peter's reaction to it. Because when it's said, Jesus doesn't seem to notice it at all. This stuff about love, he doesn't even hear it. The only thing he seems to hear is the bit about not being able to go with Jesus. Look at his reaction in verse 36. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Again, Peter challenges Jesus like he did over the foot washing. He won't just accept this, that he can't follow. Why not, he says. Why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter challenges Jesus on this. He calls him on it. He says, no, actually, no, I can come. I'm up to it, he says. I think he senses that Jesus is talking about dying. Even if it means that, he thinks, I still want to come. I'm, I'm up for it. You know, can we make sure that we honour Peter here? Here, I think, is genuinely beautiful human devotion. Here is love and loyalty, passion, integrity. Peter is strong and brave, passionate and clear. He's ready, I think, to fight, and if he needs to, to die. So why couldn't he follow? Why shouldn't he be able to follow? Bit of encouragement from Jesus, and surely he would have managed it. Actually, no. Actually, no. He was not up to it. He was not up to the fight that Jesus had to fight. He was not up to what Jesus had to go through. He thought he was, but he wasn't. Verse 38, then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Will you really? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Peter's love and loyalty, his strength and bravery, his clarity of commitment, his passion, they are not actually strong enough. They're not enough to carry through with what he believes he can do. Jesus tells him that before the night is over, he will have denied him, disowned him, refused to acknowledge him. This one he now thinks he would die for. And not just once, a passing mistake. No, he's going to double down on it. And then again, three times. Friends, this is a devastating blow to our confidence in ourselves. Last week we thought about humanity at its worst when Judas betrays Jesus. What we see now, though, is not humanity at its worst, but in its strength. Peter is in earnest. He is genuine. His commitment and love for Jesus are strong. They are kind of beautiful. But they aren't enough. They will fail him. I'm not saying that Peter shows us humanity at its absolute best here. Human beings have amazing moments of courage and devotion and self-sacrifice. 
But what we do see here is another aspect of human unreliability. That sometimes we can't live up even to our best and our truest convictions. When Peter said that he would lay down his life for Jesus, he actually meant it. And yet only hours later he would disown Jesus. That is a sobering reality. Because whatever we might think of Judas, we can't write Peter off as a no-hoper. No, he was solid. He was a serious, straight up and down, honest, lovely man, I think. He was reliable, loyal, strong. He was, I think, the kind of person many of us would love to be a little more like. But in the end, he couldn't go through with it. In the end, he failed. He let Jesus down and he let himself down. And that's our problem, you see. Not just that our worst is darker than we care to admit, though it is, but that so often we fail to be the best we'd like to think we could be and even that we really believe we could be. When it comes to the crunch, sometimes we fail to be our best selves, even when it matters. And that's why Peter couldn't follow Jesus despite his devotion it's why Jesus had to go on alone. He had to go on alone to the cross. He had to meet his arrest, the unjust trial, and then the brutality of the soldiers, the mockery and anger of the crowds, the pain of crucifixion and the darkness and horror of death under God's judgment. He had to meet all of them alone. Peter did not and could not follow him, could not help him, could not comfort him and support him, could not be his friend in the end. And nor could we have done. Nor could we have done. We too would have failed him. We would have failed to fight the injustice, failed to stand up for what was right. We would have melted like the others and left him to bear it without our help. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, says Jesus. It's a hard word to hear, isn't it? But we must hear it, because it shows us the truth. It shows us the truth that we are not our own saviors. At this crucial point, we did not and we do not make a contribution. When it comes to the crucial moment, we don't play a part. But he does it all. He is the saviour, he alone. At just this point, the book of Hebrews calls Jesus the pioneer or the captain of our salvation because he does it alone. He does a hero's work, a hero's lonely work of going on ahead to meet the enemy and to win. Being a Christian means being a follower of Jesus, for sure. But it's also about knowing that there was a moment 
when we couldn't follow. When our strength, our courage, our will, our loyalty, our love, they failed. And he had to do the work alone. But guess what? Here's the good news. Because of that, because he did it alone, our failure is not final. In fact, much more than that, our failure is not even very important. It's kind of like a nothing now. It's hardly worth a mention. Because of Jesus' heroic work, our failure is kind of like, oh yeah, that's right, we were, oh yeah, we failed, that's right. We see this in what Jesus said to Peter. Did you notice? He says, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. You will follow later. What? Remember where he's talking about? Where he's going? He's going to God. He's going to the glory of God. He is going into the glory of God that shines in the world-shattering, unexpected power and beauty and ugliness of the cross. And Jesus says to Peter that he will, in the end, follow him there. That is extraordinary good news. Jesus told his opponents that he would go and they would look for him and they would not follow and they would just die, but he doesn't say that to Peter. He doesn't say that to all who trust in him. No, to us, he says, you will follow me later. Later, you will follow. Because of what I do, he says, because of what I do alone, you will join me in the end. I will lead you on into the glory of God the Father. So what do we do then? What do we do now? What do we do in this time when we cannot yet follow where he has gone, though we know that one day we will? What do we do? Well, he's already told us in verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. We love one another. That's our job here and now. That's the task he gave to his disciples to get on with while he did what he had to do. And that's our task to get on with while we wait for our time to come too. It's not our job, you see, to save the world or to save ourselves. That is his job, and he has done it just fine. You and I cannot do it. We cannot enter into the glory of God through our own devotion and commitment. We cannot bring about the, the transformation in the world and in human beings that is needed. But he can and he has. And so our job now is just to do what he has commanded, to love one another. And by doing this, to show everyone that we belong to him, that we are his people, his followers. So let's end these three sermons by saying something briefly about loving one another. 
I've got three very short points just to talk about love. First, why just one another? Why not love everyone? Isn't it a bit selfish to just direct our love to Jesus' people? Well, it would be if that's the way love worked, but it isn't. Love is not a zero-sum game where if it's given somewhere, it's taken somewhere else. Uh, if zero-sum game doesn't make... You know, love is not like a pie that there's only so much of, and if you give this big piece to someone else, that means everybody else gets less. Love is not like that. No, love is more like a plant that grows and then gets to grow more. Or less beautifully, but perhaps more appropriately, love is like a virus. If it is learnt in one place, it will grow in other places too. If we love one another, that won't take away from love for others. It will make it come more easily. That's the first point. The second point is, do notice this one another. That's where Jesus wants us to start, with one another. That means not just with my family, nor my friends, as good as those loves will be. But he calls us to love one another, to love his people, his disciples. When you marry someone, you get their family, for better or worse. I won't speak too personally, except to say that I'm glad I married Lauren. I wouldn't have married any other members of her family. I love them, but, you know, it's different. Jesus also comes with a difficult family. He comes with a difficult family. Lauren's family's not actually very difficult, but you know what I mean. There's no way to be connected to Jesus without being connected to his difficult family. But you can't actually do it on your own. You can't just have him. He says, you want me, you get them. And he calls us to love that family. You know, he knows this won't always or even often be easy. And that's why, and this is the third point, that's why he says, as I have loved you. It's not easy to love someone, one another sometimes. Barry is always grumpy and doesn't listen to people. These are fake names, by the way. If they do match you, providence of God. Christine always, always talks about the same thing. Max really likes the Australian. Lily's, no, not Lily, Amy. I changed that because we have a Lily. <laughs> Amy votes for the Greens. Van's autism is really tiring. But it wasn't easy for Jesus to love you and me either, was it? It cost him. Remember how he loved us? As I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's our job, here and now, while we wait for the day when glory beyond imagining, we will follow. 
where we cannot yet follow. Let's get on with it. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.